The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Summer Institute, Churches Equipped to Care. Good morning. It is good to be back here with you. If I understand correctly, the uh, workbook pages for the session this morning are pages 15 through 18, and we'll be talking about sharing scripture and soul. And let me kind of put this into perspective a little bit with what we talked about last night, and I think the order is quite important. Uh, you probably heard about gospel indicatives and gospel imperatives. Gospel indicative, who we are in Christ, what we already experienced because of our salvation and sanctification in Christ. In many ways, Philippians 2 was a gospel indicative. And it's important that that, beca- that came first because in many ways we're talking today in 1 Thessalonians 2 about some gospel imperatives, how we are to live as biblical counselors. There is no way any of us, myself included, can live out what we're going to be talking about in 1 Thessalonians 2 in our own power. What we talked about last night in Philippians 2, living through Christ's resurrection power, has to be the foundation for what we're talking about today. And in many ways, last night was, if you will, a preaching sermon, and this morning is much more a teaching time. And I think, again, that's a good combination for what God wants to teach us. Let me continue the prayer without ceasing. Let me pray for us as we begin, and then we'll look at the focus for our lesson this morning. Join me. Father, we do thank you that we have encouragement from our union with Christ. We praise you for the songs we've sung this morning and the message of those. I was just thinking about if each of us here could defeat the lie of Satan, his condemning, lying narrative that we're still guilty before you, that shames us, instead of claiming the truth of the freedom from guilt and the power over sin that we have in Christ. Father, we'll be talking about some, some tough things to live out, and we can't do it in our own strength. So as we hear these, certainly challenge us, but challenge us to be Christ-dependent counselors. We pray together in his name. Amen. On page 15, you see at the bottom of that page our focus. So let me just kind of put it into focus a little bit. We all know a few things about what God calls us to do as counselors, pastors, one another ministers. He calls us to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. He calls us to make our love abound in knowledge and depth of insight, Philippians 1.9-11. He calls us to share not only the gospel, but our very own souls. All of these are things that we know, and yet, as we say in that focus, sometimes biblical counselors are stereotyped, as Jim was mentioning, as unloving truth-tellers. So in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul is going to paint for us five portraits of the biblical counselor who's doing much more than just sharing truth. Now, obviously, we must start with the foundation of truth. We started there last night. We're going to study through 1 Thessalonians 2 today. God's word is central, authoritative, sufficient, and relevant. But as we share it, we need to do it by living out these relationships. And so as we do that will increase the effectiveness of our biblical counseling, and even more importantly, going along with our theme for this conference, we'll nurture a culture of biblical care and counseling in our churches. Here's another way to say that. If we want our churches to get excited about one another ministry and biblical counseling, then we need to counsel like Paul does in 1 Thessalonians 2, sharing scripture and soul. Well, let's take a look at that with the big picture on page 16 of your notes. Now, I heard a tremendous message at another conference, another part of the country, Biblical Counseling Conference, about a year ago. 
Uh, senior pastor presented it. He's committed to biblical counseling, sufficiency of scripture. One of the best messages I've ever heard on that. At the end, he, he ended with a very appropriate illustration that we're just the UPS delivery guy. And his point in context of that message is the power is in God's word. The power is not in us. The power is in God's spirit. The power is not in us. At the end, people said amen. I said amen. And I still say amen to that. I'm not critical of the sermon. But that evening and the next morning, as I reflected on that, I thought, you know, if we're not careful, we might take his illustration out of context. And in doing that, we might continue the false stereotype that, as Jim was saying, the biblical counselors kind of like some of these guys. We're beating people over the head with the Bible. We're unloving truth tellers rather than loving truth sharers. And so the big question we want to talk about together goes like this. You see it in, in your notes. Does the Bible teach that only the message matters? Now we know the message is foundational and essential. Or does the Bible also teach that the messenger's character and motivation, we talked about that last night in Philippians 2, and the messenger's relationship to the hearer also matters greatly. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. Now, of course, we all know it's both and, right? Nobody here is going to, to fight for it's one or the other. And yet, sometimes the stereotype can hold true. Uh, I teach at a number of different seminaries, and recently I was teaching a lab class at a seminary. A, a well-trained, very experienced counselor was counseling in a, in a real-life session with another member of our lab, and that member in the lab was in tears, and the counselor was just teaching away. And during the supervision time as a group, we were saying, did you, did you kind of notice that he was really broken up at that? Yeah, I kind of did, but I had some stuff I needed to say. Well, over the course of that week, it was exciting to see him and experience biblical counselor really growing that ability to, to share scripture and soul that Paul's talking about here. And that's what we want to talk about. Here's a big idea that we want to address. We nurture a culture of biblical care and counseling in the church when the word of God is shared. And here's the five images that come directly out of 1 Thessalonians 2. When the word of God is shared with the love of a father, a mother, a brother, a child, and shared with the respect of a mentor. 1 Thessalonians 2. Now that idea is developed throughout 1 Thessalonians 2, but even earlier in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, we see this idea of the character and the life and relationship of the counselor. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul says, because our gospel, let me even go back to verse 4, for we know brothers loved by God, here's the relationship part, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words. Paul wasn't just sharing words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Truth and love were vital to the Apostle Paul in his ministry. And it was vital in First Thessalonians. And just like yesterday, we started with the background to Philippians. We need to think a little bit about the background to, to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. There were a couple things going on here. There were, in Paul's day a number of traveling charlatans. Leon Morris, who's a great commentator and theologian, he writes this, and he says it almost poetically as he talks about uh, the situation in Paul's day. Here's what he says. In Paul's day, holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots and cranks, 
the sincere and the spurious, the righteous and the rogue, swindlers and saints, jostled and clamored for the attention of the credulous and the skeptical. That was the situation in Paul's day. It's nothing like that today, right? Uh, It's much the same. So when Paul was ministering to them, he certainly wanted to say to them, be Bereans. I want you to be a Berean, not only about my message, but about my very own character. It reminds me of what Paul says to Timothy as he's mentoring him in 1 Timothy 4.16. Remember, watch your life and your doctrine. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. My life and relationship is vital, and my doctrine is vital also. Be a Berean, Paul's saying, who watches what I say, check it out by the word, and also watch my character and how I relate to you. Paul also thought this was very vital because there were a lot of false accusations being levied against the Apostle Paul. We see some of this in verses 2 and 3. Paul says, and this is on chapter 2, we had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi. As you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you the gospel in spite of strong opposition. What was some of this opposition? Notice verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. These were the charges being levied against Paul. Nor are we trying to trick you. And then in verse 5. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. Paul's not just making this up. These were the accusations being levied against him. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men not from you or for anyone else. Leon Morris, based on these verses, has this to say. It is clear from the epistle that Paul had been accused of insincerity. His enemies said that he was more concerned to make money out of his converts than to present true teaching. The accusation would be made easier in virtue of the well-known fact that itinerant preachers concerned only to feather their own nests were common in those days. Paul was being represented as nothing more than another class of this and as only Leon Morris can say, preaching vagrants. So the Apostle Paul, due to the charlatans of his day, due to these false accusations, wanted to communicate something of his purpose and his character and relationship in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We put it this way, the middle of page 16 in your notes. So Paul writes, to affirm his ministry as from God and to affirm the nature of all ministry from God by modeling five portraits, and notice how I say this, of Truthing in love. Ephesians 4.15, we often translate and talk about that we are called to speak the truth in love. It's interesting that in the Greek, that speak is not there. It's really aletheia, truth. We are to be truthing in love. We are to embody the truth in our very character in a loving way. And so Paul wants to talk and give us five portraits of truthing in love. And what I hope to do in the time we have left this morning is as we share these portraits is to create create in our minds a a renewed deeper biblical vision of what it means not only to share scripture but to share our very own souls as paul talks about in first thessalonians 2 and verse 8 let's start talking about these portraits together five portraits portrait number one the middle of page 16 the love of a defending brother's I've got your back, bro. Now, where do I get that from? Well, first of all, brothers is used 26 times in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. I think Paul thought it was important. And Paul uses it, as we'll see in a moment, to communicate both this family love and this sense of army or having one another's back. So let's look at the first part of this. Paul says, we are family. 
I read 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and let me read it again. For we know brothers loved by God. Now, sometimes we read these beginning salutations and these epistles, and they just kind of race by. We don't even think about it. But, but think about the Thessalonians receiving this from the great apostle Paul. We know brothers loved by God. Adelphoi, siblings in God's family by grace. So they might look at him, and yeah, the great apostle Paul, he can stand firm before God, but us? Say, no, we, we are brothers together by grace. Paul, from the very get-go, as he writes to them, is communicating equality with them. That's not just the UPS delivery guy. Now, I know my UPS delivery guy quite well. I sell a lot of books. I buy a lot of books. He comes all the time. He even says, well, you're one of the few people that actually helps me carry your books to the door. I probably know my UPS delivery guy better than most any of you know your UPS delivery guy. But the Apostle Paul is much more than just the UPS delivery guy when he says, brothers, beloved by God. It reminds me also of Galatians 6.1 and that sense of equality that we're all called to. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, going back to Galatians 5.22-23 and the fruit of the Spirit, you who are spiritual, should restore him, but do it gently, humbly, and watch yourself or you also may be tempted. There is this spirit of equality. Now, yesterday I stopped three or four times to pray. We're going to stop about ten times today, not for me to pray, but for all of us to prayerfully reflect. And here's our first time. You see it in your notes. And it's not just a checkpoint, a bullet point. It's a time for some prayerful reflection. Here's how we put it in the notes. Could my counselee or my parishioner, if I'm a pastor, my spiritual friend is a, a layperson, my spouse, my children, put in there whatever is appropriate. Could they say this of me based on... The verse we've just looked at. I experience you as a beloved brother embracing me as a fellow equal member of God's forever family by grace. When somebody thinks of a biblical counselor, is that the image that comes to mind? When somebody thinks of you or me as their one another minister, do they think, wow, this person is a beloved brother embracing me as a fellow equal member of God's forever family by grace. Remember I said, We can't do this on our own. And what I don't want you to do is leave here because we have 10 of these where we might say, man, I am so far off the mark. I don't want Satan to get in. I want Christ to get in and say, I want to keep moving you more and more toward that biblical portrait. Well, I mentioned that it's not only family but army. Where do I get that from? Well, point B, the bottom of page 16, a band of brothers daring boldly and giving sacrificially. Verses 1 and 2 of First Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, brothers, there's that word again, that our visit to you was not a failure. Why not? Well, we had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. And that's why I use this phrase of a band of brothers. This word opposition is agonai. Obviously, we get agony or struggle. It was used in Paul's day in two ways. It was used of the agony of the training of Olympians, and it was used of the training for warfare, and thus, band of brothers. Paul's saying, though we were persecuted, it wasn't easy for us to share the gospel. We weren't here making money. This was tough stuff. And yet, we did it because we cared about you. 
we summon courage from Christ to boldly and daringly, courageously share truth because we cared. When I think about this, another passage comes to mind. And what I want to do throughout our next half hour or so is not only look at 1 Thessalonians 2, but what are other passages that also support these images? I think of Colossians 1, 28 through 2, 3. Colossians 1, 28 to 2, 3. Paul says, we proclaim him, Christ, so sharing Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, there's the truth part, so that we may present everyone perfect, mature in Christ, that's his motive, but how does he do it? To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Now, my UPS guy, he labors struggling, but not because he's got a heart burden for me, because I got big book orders that are coming, but Paul's laboring and struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We've got truth and love all over the place there. Paul is passionate about that. That's not just a UPS delivery guy. Here's our second prayerful reflection time. Could my counselee, parishioner, spiritual friend, husband, wife, teenage son or daughter, say this to me, I experience you as a member of a band of brothers, as a teammate who fights for me and who agonizes on my behalf. That's not beating people over the head with the Bible. That's sharing Scripture out of passion and compassion. Well, Paul's not nearly done with his five portrait. He moves on page 17 of your notes to portrait number two. The love of a cherishing mother. I long for you with nourishing and cherishing affection. Now, for some of you, some of the men, it's like, well, I can't put that image on. Well, the macho apostle Paul put that image on. And in a moment, we're going to talk about the love of a shepherding father. Paul is giving us all sorts of images that paint beautiful pictures of the relational nature of truthing in love. So as Paul talks about this, notice verses 7 and 8 back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we were gentle among you, Paul says, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives as well, our souls, because you had become dear Toss. I don't know about you, but that's not my UPS delivery guy. Let's break this down into two pieces. First, a nursing mother. Paul says, we were gentle among you. Very similar language to what's used in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven, where we're told that Jesus was in the midst of you, not to lord it, lord it over you, but as a servant, sacrificially. We are called as biblical counselors to be among, to be in the midst as sacrificial servants. And as we do that, Paul says he did it as a nursing mother. Trophos is the Greek. Nursing at the breast. Tender nourishing. Now, Calvin, a great theologian who's not necessarily known as like Mr. Touchy-Feely, here's how he translates and describes this. It is a mother in nursing her children who manifests a certain rare and wonderful affection inasmuch as she spares no labor and trouble shuns no anxiety, is tireless, and even with cheerfulness of spirit gives of her own blood to be suckled. That's how 
Calvin describes the calling of Paul and the calling that you and I have on our lives. He also says you are caring, thelpo in the Greek, cherishing, tender, caring for, keeping warm. I'm thankful that's not my UPS delivery guy at all. Some other verses that come to mind here that continue to support this idea. Galatians 4 and verse 9, Paul says, My dear children, just stop there. Does our counsel leave feel like that? They're our dear child. For whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Again, Paul using this imagery of a mother nursing, giving birth. Another passage that really communicates Paul's compassion and passion. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 11 through 13. 2 Corinthians 6, 11 to 13. Paul says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. And we've opened wide our hearts to you. Do our counselees feel that? We spoke freely to them. We opened wide not only our mouths, but our hearts to them. We're not withholding our affection from you. But now he challenges them in love. But you're withholding your affection from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. The third prayerful reflection. Could my counselee, parishioner, spiritual friend, family member, church member say this to me? I experience you as a nursing mother nourishing me with tender, cherishing love. Let let that sink in. Is that the image? It's certainly the image that God is calling us to as biblical counselors. Then we have the picture of an affectionate, generous mother. Let me reread verse 8, which I call a scripture soul sandwich. Because you've got sharing scripture, sharing, sharing soul sandwiched around. You're dear to me. We loved you. We loved you so much, one end, one slice of the sandwich, that we were delighted to share with you not only the scripture, the gospel, as vital as that is, but also our lives as well our souls because you had become so dear to us, the other slice of the sandwich, if you will. A couple of the, the words here that stand out. We loved you to long for to be affectionately desirous, to to yearn tenderly after. Delighted. We were well pleased. This is not a duty, Paul says. This is a joy to impart, to share generously and personally. Paul, Paul is delighted to share from the overflow of Christ generously and personally. And he says, dear to us. Going back to the word dearly beloved. Leon Morris again has this to say. He's speaking about the preacher, but it applies just as much to the counselor, whether it's the pulpit ministry of the word or the personal ministry of the word. Speaking of this verse, he says, but the real sharing of the gospel implies the total committal of the preacher or counselor to the task. If they give a message, they also give themselves. Are we just beating people over the head with the Bible? Are we giving scripture and soul? Our fourth prayerful reflection Could my counselee, parishioner, spiritual friend say this of me? I experience you as an affectionate, generous mother giving me your very own soul because I am dearly loved by you. Let that sink in for a moment. Don't let Satan's condemnation shame you. Let Christ's spirit encourage you and me to take on these portraits and images. Uh, the Apostle Paul is just not even halfway done with his portrait just in one chapter. We see portrait number three, middle of page 17 of your notes, the love of a shepherding father. Now the men here say, yeah, finally, talk about this manly stuff here. 
We had brothers, we had fathers, we had mothers. I love you individually and uniquely with guiding love. Paul's got this work of art, this portrait of the biblical counselor, and he's about halfway done. And we read in verses 10 through 12, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believe. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. Sounds like Philippians 2. Who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. Sounds like Philippians 2.15. Let's look at a couple aspects of this. First of all, we are called to this portrait of a focus father. Paul says, we dealt with each of you. The, the Greek is very specific here. Individual attention is what's being talked about. Uh, again, Leon Morris says the context involved individual pastoral care and focus, not just group concern. Now, I've been a pastor in three churches, and, and you can have that group concern, but miss that individual in front of you. And that's what Paul's talking about here, with each of you. When our kids, Josh and Marie, were very young, uh, we used to play a little game with them called eye contact. I mean, you know how you're supposed to have eye contact with people. Well, we wouldn't do it quite like that. I would bellow out, Josh, Marie, eye contact. And, and so they would come and they'd put their eye socket in my eye socket and we would have eye contact. Now, they're 28 and 25. I don't get away with that anymore. I'm not suggesting you use that as a biblical counseling method. I'm simply illustrating that this is soul-to-soul Eye contact, if you will, that Paul's talking about. Individual focused attention is what Paul is saying. It's easy, isn't it? Sometimes in a, in a day you might have six or seven appointments. And that person becomes what? A number on the to-do list. And if we're doing it in our own power, it's like check off the fourth one. I only got two to go. And, and I mean, that's human, but we've got to be supernatural in our counseling through Christ's power. And it's not checking off a number. It's I can't wait for this fifth person to come because I want to love them just the way I love the first four. I guess I really shouldn't say just the way because the next one is a wise father, which isn't a one-size-fits-all sort of counseling. But let me go back. I skipped over for a second our fifth prayerful reflection. We'll come back to that. So our fifth prayerful reflection. Could my counselee, parishioner, spiritual friend say this of me? I experience you as a father focused on me with individual pastoral attention doesn't mean you have to be a pastor pastoral is shepherding attention does our counselee feel like we're a number they're a number or they're a unique person which then goes into verse 12 let me read that again the end of verse 11 for you know we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children encouraging comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of god who calls you into his kingdom He's talking now about person-specific care and situation-specific care and and need-specific care. And he gives three phrases here. Let's look at each of these briefly. Uh, The first one's encouraging. We looked at that word yesterday, remember? Encouragement, paraclesis, someone called alongside to help, to comfort, to care, to encourage, to put courage in someone who's discouraged. That's one aspect of fatherly biblical counseling, but it's not the only one. We see a second picture here and a second image. It comes from the word comfort. It means to console, especially to console the faint-hearted and the grieving. I think of it as co-fort, co-fortitude. 
shared sorrow is endurable sorrow. Is our counseling, could it be pictured with this individual care? Some people need encouragement because they're discouraged. Some people need comfort because they're grieving. Some people need urging, the next word, testifying by applying truth specifically to life. Now, I want to give you some other passages of Scripture that indicate the same idea of person-specific, need-specific care. I'm sure some of these would come to your minds. Ephesians 4.29 Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for, for building others up according to their need that it may benefit those who listen. And one of the dangers sometimes of coming to a wonderful uh, conference like this is you get a few pet verses or pet methods and you just got to cram them down every person, whether it fits or not. We need to speak the truth in love, truthing in love in a way that's person and need specific, according to Ephesians 4.29. How about 1 Thessalonians 5.14? A verse we all have heard many times, five different words used there for one another ministry. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, First word, brothers, warn. Second word, those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Third word, help the weak. Fourth word, and be patient with everyone. One verse, five different concepts about biblical counseling. Person-specific, situation-specific. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. There's a time for teaching and there's a time for mourning. There's a time for blending those together so our sixth prayerful reflection could my counselee parishioner spiritual friend say this of me i experience you as a wise and caring father shepherding me with exactly what i uniquely need at the specific moment encouragement consolation or guidance if you've got those six counselees coming in one day do we cram the same verse in because that's what we had devotions in in the morning or are we person and need and situation specific as we minister to them. Now, when I first studied 1 Thessalonians 2, I always thought about these first three portraits, brothers, mother, father. They were pretty obvious to me, but as I began to study the commentaries, study the original languages for this uh, presentation, I kind of sovereignly stumbled upon two additional portraits that are very important that we want to look at, the Fourth portrait toward the bottom of page 17. The love of a longing orphan. I love you as an orphan child bereaved of his parents. Now, Paul turns this whole thing upside down with this image. Notice verses 17 and 18 of First, uh, first Thessalonians chapter 2. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. This is very interesting. Paul uses the language of a grieving orphan. I mean, think about it. He's been talking about kind of images of brothers and that equality, but then mother and father, kind of that position of of maturity and, and giving to others, and then he turns it upside down. You say, well, where do you get that from? Well, torn away, the phrase I read in verse 17, was used in Paul's day almost exclusively of an orphan bereaved of parents, of a child bereft by separation. That's where I get it from, right from the text. Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, who's kind of like Calvin, you wouldn't think of him as necessarily Mr. Touchy-Feely Church Father. Chrysostom, commenting on this verse, says, 
Paul sought for a word that might fitly indicate his mental anguish. Though standing in relation of a father to them all, he yet utters the language of orphan children that have permanently lost their parents. In my notes, I have a one-word summary to that. Wow. Wow, that's powerful. Let me do that again. Chrysostom, he sought, Paul sought for a word that might fitly indicate his mental anguish over the separation, though standing in relation to a father to them all, he yet utters the language of orphan children that have permanently lost their parent. When I think of that, I think of another passage of Paul's intense ministry that was so intimate that when he had to leave them, there was, there was separation issues. Think of Acts 20, 21 through 21. One. Remember Paul with the Ephesians elders, Acts 20, 21? When Paul had said this, said what? I'm leaving now and I won't see you again. He knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And Paul says, similar phrase, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea. My UPS delivery guy doesn't cry when he leaves my house. (laughs) Unless it's from pain from all the books and boxes that he's delivering. Paul cries a, a cry of separation. A prayerful reflection on the bottom of page 17. Could my counselee, parishioner, spiritual friend say this of me? I experience you as, a, as longing for me so much that when we are apart, you grieve like an orphan. Is that how we're experienced by those we're ministered to? Second aspect of this on page 18 of your notes, Paul talks about an attached child. Verse 17 again and into 18. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, you might have been away from us face to face, but we kept thinking about you in our souls. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan stopped us. Here's how I translated this kind of from the original. Out of intense longing, we endeavored exceedingly with great desire to see you. Out of intense longing, we endeavored exceedingly with great desire to see you. Let's be honest. We probably all have some counselees or parishioners who are kind of extra grace required people. And sometimes I'm an extra grace required person, ask Shirley. We all can be in that category. But But when those folks are on our schedule, and it ought to be more than a schedule, a a prayer list, and they're they're coming at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, we need to be praying 1 Thessalonians 2.17. Rather than, oh my goodness, I got to see that person? I mean, let's be honest, we giggle about it, but we're human, and and we need to be praying this first. Lord, give me an intense longing so that I endeavor exceedingly with great desire to see that 3 o'clock appointment who's not just an appointment, they've got a name, they've got a soul, there's a person I need to love with Christ's love. And it's interesting too, the tense is non-stop eager desire. That doesn't come from self, that comes from Christ. A verse that makes me think about this, again, especially when we think of Paul turning things upside down from the father and mother to the orphan child. Paul expressing his need for his parishioners, if you will, his mentees, to minister to him. 2 Corinthians 7, 
verses 5 and 7. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 and 7. Paul says, For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. Paul's just honest. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. We're harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Do you ever admit that to your counselee? Now, I'm not suggesting you turn the session around and it's always about you. (laughs) But if we're talking about one another ministry, are there times, times when led by the Spirit and appropriately that does happen? Paul's doing it right here. But God who comforts the downcast, he's saying I'm downcast, comforted us by the coming of Timothy. Of Titus, I needed to be comforted, Paul said. Do you ever say that to your parishioners if you're a pastor? To your counselees if you're a counselor? To your children if you're a parent? And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given us. Paul's saying, you minister to me. I need you. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Do we allow our counselees, our parishioners, our children to impact us? That's what Paul's doing. He's allowing himself to be impacted by the very people he's called to minister to. Our eighth time of prayerful reflection. Could my counselee, parishioner, spiritual friend say this of me? I experience you as desperately longing for deep connection with me. Is that the image that comes to their mind? Is that the image that even the Christian world out there, when they think of biblical counselors, is that the image that comes to mind? By God's Spirit, let's leave here changing those false stereotypes with new biblical images. A fifth and final portrait. This is another one that before I studied this passage in more detail, I missed. I had seen the, the brother and the mother and the father. I hadn't seen the orphan and I hadn't seen number five. The respect of a proud king or mentor. I respect you and I'm proud of you. Verses 18 through 20. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? And catch this, is it not you? The great apostle Paul saying, you are our crown of glory. Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. The first aspect of this image, a king or president granting a spiritual medal of honor. Verse 18, when Paul talks about Satan put an obstacle, that, that's a, a military context. In Paul's day, there weren't a whole lot of ro- roads to get through, especially a large army, so the enemy would put a cut in the road, road, a large cavern that would make it almost impassable, or as they went in, it would be a place where the enemy could oppose and attack them, where they were most vulnerable. That's the language Paul's using. It's military context. And Paul gives in verse 19 the military context of the conquering emperor or king coming back. And in the Roman Empire, sometimes that king would be humble enough to to honor the servants, but typically in the Roman Empire, all that honor went back to that emperor. But Paul is turning that image around, and he's saying, I want to not honor myself as a conquering hero. I want to say you are the conquering hero. Paul, a victorious king turning to the privates in the army and giving them that spiritual medal of honor you know i still remember the first male that really believed in me and for me it was fifth grade it was mr deline my fifth grade teacher it impacts me today i don't know 40 some years later he made me a, a playground patrol 
And I know we, we giggle about that, and I understand that. We kind of laugh. But you know what? Ten-year-old Bobby needed somebody to look at him and say, you can do something. You can be a leader. I hadn't had that message communicated to me by any mail. Think of what it means to your counselees that look up to you for, for you to say, I want to give you a spiritual medal of honor. Could my counselee, parishioner, spiritual friend say this of me? I experience you as a mentor so proud of who I am in Christ that you give me a spiritual medal of honor. Do they only see a sin spotting? And it's important to care front about sin, no doubt. But do they also see us giving them those spiritual medals? They come back and they report some victory in their life. Do we celebrate that with them? Well, that's the next image also. A mentor's pride and joy. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when He comes? Is it not you? Can you imagine the Thessalonians getting this letter? Did, did, did I read that right? Paul's talking about us, me. Indeed, Paul's got to repeat it because he doesn't think they're going to believe it. You are our glory. And our joy. Hendrickson commenting on this is Paul loves them and he's proud of them. It's a simple statement. Paul loves them. He's proud of them. And Hendrickson goes on. He publicly honors them for their esteemed service as spiritual champions. He publicly honors them for their esteemed service as spiritual champions. I think of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7. He says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity. Even in the Greek, there's a, there's a play on word there, Timothy and timid. And from what we know of, of Timothy's personality, there is that tendency to be intimidated and to be timid. And Paul says, that's not the spirit you have. He's given you a spirit of power. Can you imagine Timothy having Paul, his mentor, say, you don't have a spirit of timidity. You've got a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of wisdom and the encouragement that that would bring him. Yes, we need to expose sin, but do we, do we also celebrate saints? Do we celebrate victory? Is the, the onlooking even Christian world, when they think about biblical counselors, it's only exposing sin, or is it also celebrating saints and celebrating victory, stirring up the gift of God? Could my counselee, parishioner, Spiritual friends say this of me, I experience you as a mentor so proud of who I am in Christ that I am your pride and joy. Our counselees leave every session, our parishioners every meeting feeling beat up and beat down by us? Or do they feel encouraged and, and celebrated? Uh, the five portraits and just some samples of the 12 or so images we had. Just, just let it soak in a little bit. Are we just the UPS delivery guy? Are these the images that come to mind when people think of us as biblical counselors that our counselees and parishioners think of? Let it soak in. The messenger of the message is important. We're not just the UPS delivery guy. We are a brother, mother, father, child, and mentor. So some reflecting questions here. 
Could my counselee, parishioner, spiritual friend say this, this of me? I experience you, and I bring it all together. As a defending brother, cherishing mother, shepherding father, longing child, proud mentor, how would these five images change my counseling? How would they change the care culture of our church? Maybe getting a little more personal, which of these five images do I need to most add to my ministry? How could I begin to relate more like these portraits? Take a moment just to reflect on those. Maybe jot a few thoughts down. Final thought. Now, sometimes when I talk like this, I get a little pushback, and I understand it, because people think, well, are you saying, Bob, then it becomes all about us? Are we bragging about what a loving counseling pastor dude or dudette we are? Just like we talked about yesterday, no, it's not all about us. We're to repeatedly go back to our counselees, parishioners, children, and if they affirm us, thank them humbly, and then point them to the one where any of that's coming from, it's coming from Christ. We're not taking on these portraits so somehow we can applaud ourselves. We're taking on these portraits so we can reflect the ultimate divine counselor, Christ, who came full of what? Grace and truth. And as people think of biblical counselors, as they think of us, as people full not only of truth, but full of grace and truth. And we do it, as we learned last night, not in our own power. We're not going to take on these five portraits in our own strength. It comes by living through Christ. That's how we become like Christ, so that we live for Christ's glory. Join me in prayer. Father, I don't want my brothers and sisters here to leave feeling beat up. You just talked about the opposite of that. I do want all of us, myself included, leaving this particular time in your word challenged, encouraged, with maybe some renewed images, portraits of what we're called to be and how we're called to relate as biblical counselors. By your Spirit, empower us to be more like these images from Paul. Not so that we can brag about what great loving people we are, but so we can point people back to you, the ultimate counselor, full of grace and truth. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2013, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios can be found on our website at www.ibcd.org.